Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. We plan so much of our lives around food. Hit a coffee stand in the morning for a quick jolt and a donut for the road. Don't miss your train and don't drop that coffee. It's boiling. Stop into the local sandwich shop to grab a bite on a lunch break. Gather for dinner with family at that place that's changed names five times in the past 10 years. Then, after a long week, cram into a local bar with music so loud you have to yell conversations from a foot away. Those places and those patterns were upended last year. Where people once buzzed around downtown, dining and drinking, all of a sudden, there was silence. The city was just... um... It, it was a ghost town. I mean, it was literally, I went in there at 5.30 on a Wednesday night in June last year, and I felt like I was in um, Will Smith's movie, uh, I Am Legend. You know, I mean, it was like an apocalypse. There was no one walking around. Bob Luz is the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. He knows better than anyone just how bad the pandemic's damages were. Across economic sectors, sure, but especially to restaurants. Some of the state's most beloved hangouts are now gone. And as many disappeared, so too did the character they brought to their neighborhoods. But that's happening in a restaurant industry that looks different than it did pre-COVID. So we have to ask, how much of what we lost will return? And how much of what's changed is changed for good? That's what we're talking about today. I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a podcast about reopening Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. This is episode four, Food. Welcome back to Mass Reboot. I'm here with my co-hosts, Jennifer Smith and Steve Cazella. So guys, today's episode is in fact called Food. And of course, that presents a whole world of different avenues we could go down and cover in depth. But the pandemic had such an impact on people's lives. So, of course, food is a big part of that. For the sake of keeping this episode focused and shorter than seven hours long, we're going to talk about food as it relates specifically to the restaurant and bar industry. So I'm curious from you two, Jen, Steve, when you think about food during the pandemic, what sticks out to you the most? I think something that hit me surprisingly hard was the loss of gathering spaces. You know, as a reporter, you get used to meeting people for interviews and background chats at, you know, local cafes, bars, restaurants, outdoor events, that sort of thing. So that changed but could be worked around. But it was much harder to pivot a normal social life away from basically, hey, friends, want to grab a bite or a drink and talk for a few hours and replace it with a Zoom box. So this sort of fun, casual background part of our lives suddenly became much more complicated. Yeah, remember when Zoom was a fun thing to do for cocktail parties? Like you'd all get together at the end of a long workday on Zoom and have some more Zoom cocktail parties. (laughs) The optimistic early days, I think, when we thought that that was still fun. Um, For me, I think it's just a relief to be able to get back to restaurants. You know, it feels familiar somehow. It feels sort of warm and inviting. A lot of COVID's disorientation related to food. You know, you remember all the confusion about how to, you know, even go to the grocery store and then what to do with your groceries 
you got home, all of the meals that we cooked at home that we used to eat out and so forth. So I think that's representative in a way of just the big societal implications of where we happen to be when it's time to eat. That's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, definitely. So clearly lots to chew on there, if you will. I thought we left the puns behind in the horse race. (laughs) Pour one out for the horse race puns. (laughs) Uh, We've got lots more to talk about, so let's get to the show. Let's do it. Saturday, March 14th, 2020, was just four days after Governor Charlie Baker announced a state of emergency. But many Bostonians treated the night like any other start to a St. Patrick's Day weekend in the city. South Boston bars saw hordes of people and lines down the block, despite calls from public officials to stay home or stay distanced. Sunday, March 15th, 2020, not a day I will uh, ever forget. This is Bob Luz again, who heads the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. Uh, I woke that morning to a call from Mayor Walsh's office, uh, uh, Chief Barrows, and Mayor Walsh wanted to speak with me. There had been some uh, issues over in South Boston the night before, and they had made the decision to shut down parts of Boston in terms of uh, nightlife, specifically around bars. Bob was also having ongoing conversations with state officials who are planning for an even more drastic measure. Lieutenant Governor called me and and gave me the word that ultimately at 6 o'clock that night, 6.30 that night, we would close it down. Uh, And so, you know, it it obviously uh, was the worst day ever for our industry. Um, By uh, Wednesday, March 18th, the day after we closed, we had laid off, furloughed, I'm sorry, 255,000 out of the 300,000 workers that work directly within the four walls of a restaurant. The pandemic's blow to restaurants was immediate. In the early days of COVID, our understanding of how the virus spread wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. But we knew certain things to be true. We knew that high-risk activities included large indoor gatherings with people from different households talking and eating together. When you hear that, what else do you picture besides a restaurant? No matter what industry you look at, the COVID shutdown forced it to change, quickly and drastically. As Bob Luz recalls, when it came to restaurants, that whole sector of the economy ground to a halt pretty much overnight. We had uh, fresh product uh, on our shelves. We had frozen product on our shelves. We had the livelihood of 300,000 people, not just the restaurant owners themselves, uh, that were all turned upside down. The loss of restaurant jobs made up a huge portion of the spikes in unemployment that followed the shutdown. It was also a part of a broader trend. Hourly workers, part-time workers, young people, and people of color really suffered. Many office workers could just take a laptop home, turn it on, and get right back to work. But restaurant workers and other hourly workers just didn't have that option. We at the Massing Polling Group have a lot of data about what was going on right then in those early weeks of COVID. Our survey showed that by the third weekend in March, a staggering number of people had lost some or all of their paychecks. Among hourly workers, 39% had already lost pay. For part-time workers, it was 54%. That was the second week of the state of emergency. And behind every single one of those numbers were stories. Many service workers were left scrambling after their places of employment abruptly closed. Caroline is a bartender at Scholars, a downtown bar and restaurant on School Street between Beacon Hill and the Financial District. 
She lost her job when they shut down March 16th. It was like a shock because it kind of, it just, from, you know, everything being open to everything shutting down within a month and you're just kind of stuck at home, you have nothing to do. It's like you're at home and you're just wondering what's like, what's going to happen next. So it's a little bit confusing, but I mean. COVID hit Caroline's loved ones hard. Everyone in her immediate family got sick. Her mom was admitted to the ICU. My mom in, she's all alone. Um, you can't go inside. You can't. I couldn't like bring her inside. I just had to bring her there. So it was hard. And like the only thing we could do was FaceTime and just listen and wait. She what had to keep money coming in and also keep her family afloat. Caroline's a silver lining kind of person, but this was difficult. And also, you know, you have to take care of the family. So you're looking for a job. You're looking for work. Everything is closing with bars and you're just kind of just trying to figure out what else you can do to kind of um, be able to support the family and help out. By a few months into the pandemic, restaurants were facing a very real financial crisis. In June and July of 2020, we conducted a survey of small businesses across Massachusetts. Restaurants were in the biggest danger of almost any kind of business. 40% of restaurants said they were behind on rent at that point, and 55% had fallen behind on other bills like vendor bills, taxes, insurance, or utilities. In all, two-thirds of restaurants said their revenue had fallen by at least half. The resulting unemployment hammered cities like Lawrence, home to large populations of hourly and part-time workers and people of color. Lawrence was also hard hit by the pandemic itself, with one of the highest rates of COVID of any city in Massachusetts. Dan Rivera was mayor of Lawrence from 2013 to January of this year. I mean, I think to say that the pandemic was a, a shock to our, to our economy is an understatement. I mean, people just didn't know what to do. And then you I met up with former Mayor Rivera and Juana Matias, the former state rep from the area, and now our COO at Mass Inc. We sat down in Terra Luna Cafe in downtown Lawrence. Juana and I spoke with Ashley Gomez, a server, and one of the many Terra Luna employees who were laid off for a portion of the pandemic. Truthfully, I went some time without working, and I had to maintain myself with the unemployment that the state was giving because there was no work, no one was taking personnel because of COVID, and it was really a difficult situation, and not until really now are things starting to normalize. Ashley has since been rehired at Terra Luna. She says these days, operations are less focused on the in-person dining experience. During that time period, things were selling mostly through Uber Eats and DoorDash and through the phone calls. Everyone ordered food, but from home, even though they weren't coming to the business physically, they were using Uber Eats, DoorDash uh, to order food. And, you know, the business continued to be maintained that way, even though people weren't coming to our establishment. Restaurants that offered takeout and outdoor dining also had a leg up when indoor dining was suspended. Luckily for Terra Luna, their patio space helped during the pandemic and continues to be useful still today. The client loves to be outside. If you notice today, it's cloudy, it's going to rain, and there are not a lot of clients here because clients love to be outside and they like to uh, enjoy each other in outside settings. The way I see it is we have more clientele here when our outside section of the restaurant is open. The experience of communal dining was lost during COVID, and that's significant. 
Food represents far more than just fuel for our bodies. Food is culture. Food is family. Food is joy. And with joy in short supply, outdoor dining came to Lawrence when they needed it most. You know, because it's a, such a big Latinx community, eating outside is not something that people knew. You eat outside everywhere. And so they, it just took off. And it was beautiful. People, you know, in the middle of this crisis, we're losing, you know, lots of people. It was just vibrant downtown. It was just crazy vibrant. It was wild because Kendrys, who's a, he was a city council president at the time, he's like, "We gotta keep doing this. We gotta just keep doing it because it feels like Dominican Republic outside." And it was just, it was just, it was serendipitous in the, the like one of the most saddest times that it just things just livened up, which kind of helped through the process because people did lose a lot of people. Restaurants were allowed to begin outdoor dining last June. That option plus takeout provided a life raft to the restaurant industry. Many restaurants adapted quickly. Since the pandemic started, it used to be 90 to 92% of their sales were inside the four walls. And maybe some of those restaurants that were starting to do takeout or delivery really didn't wasn't there before. Might have been eight or ten percent at the most. You know, that model looked, you know, through the summer and fall last year, they were probably doing 25% of their sales was takeout and delivery. 45% 45% was outdoors, um, and the remaining 30% was indoors. For restaurants that had liquor licenses, that also opened up a door for new options and new business. More on that after the break. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. Starting March 2020, customers could order beer and wine to go with their food. In July, that was extended to cocktails. But like many measures, the to-go option and outdoor dining options affected each business differently. I talked to Bruno Prado, assistant general manager and bartender at Yvonne's, a speakeasy-style restaurant, supper club, and bar near Downtown Crossing in Boston. Our restaurant is not like a takeout restaurant. People come here to have the experience of sitting at the table, having a cocktail at the table. Of course, we did some volume of to-go's and cocktail sugar, but it wasn't crazy as other restaurants were. Uh, we didn't affect this as much. Uh, we created a cocktail sugar list that we could get it for during the mandate, um, but it wasn't crazy for us. But I, I know like a restaurants around the city were like going nuts with takeout. Going nuts with takeout is one of the big and potentially durable changes to dining. Research from the National Restaurant Association shows takeout and delivery make up a far larger share of total sales than they did before the pandemic. That includes both food and cocktails to go. And our polling shows both are popular. In a recent statewide poll from us at the Massing Polling Group, 72% said they support using space on the street for outdoor dining as the state reopens from the pandemic, and they support it even if it means less space for cars. In the same vein, 64% support keeping cocktails-to-go policies. Pre-pandemic, Yvonne's was a staple of the off-hours politico and journalism scene, just a short walk from Beacon Hill. 
But when downtown shut down, students went home, workers stayed home, and it hasn't yet come roaring back. It was wild. It was so empty. Uh, it's still kind of empty because people are not back in an office yet. So I believe September is that when they are officially back in your office. But even now, There are also the seasonal swings of certain restaurants and bars. Summer is rooftop season, beach season, outdoor dining season. So places that generally see more traffic during the colder months lost out on two springs and a whole winter, and they're now trying to gear up for this fall. Because uh, we are kind of basement, there's no windows over here. Uh, we don't have as much volume during the summertime. And of course, during the pandemic, everyone should be outside. Everyone should be enjoy the outdoors during the summertime, which I'd rather do that too. So people definitely now are in seaport area or rooftops. The increase in outdoor dining and changes to takeout drink rules played a major role in keeping many restaurants alive. But in a state like Massachusetts, it took some doing to make it happen. The Commonwealth is famously puritanical about drinking. Everything related to bars requires a license or permit. If you own a bar and want to put in a pool table, ping pong, recorded music, live music down to just one guitarist in the corner of the bar, amplification systems, outdoor propane heaters, dancing, and even televisions, that all requires a permit or license. Getting the necessary paperwork often requires multiple layers of approval, all of which take time. And in the early months of COVID, time was in very short supply. Bob says Governor Baker's emergency proclamation shortened the entire process specific to outdoor dining from months to days. They wanted to closely control it inside the four walls. You know, so we worked aggressively with the governor to get that taken care of. And literally, he came out with an emergency proclamation uh, a couple days later that took a normal uh, 10 to 12 week approval process that started in the neighborhood, went to the city, went to the state, went to the uh, back to the city and back down to the neighborhood. Uh, and basically, we squashed that whole thing and gave it 100 percent authority to cities and towns. And, and they could do it as little as three days. That change wasn't enough to keep all restaurants alive. Many that had been struggling before the pandemic or didn't have the capacity to open outdoors or rely on takeout collapsed under the weight of it. Dan Rivera saw this play out among some of Lawrence's restaurants. Um, in the end, if you were a restaurant on the edge, it was a kind of a fatal blow. But if you were a restaurant mature towards a more higher mature, you kind of weathered it because there was money for the food. He recalls at the beginning of the pandemic when the call across the city was stay home. But he remembers thinking people still needed to get food. He points out that the city of Lawrence was equipped with a coalition of nonprofits and local businesses that was built during another emergency in the not-too-distant past, the 2018 Merrimack Valley gas explosions. The group, Groundwork Lawrence, got to work right away. They just reconvened, and they were like, what can we do? And so they started doing drive-up food pickup, and they were they said, well, if we're going to do food, we should get the food from the restaurant. So they did that very early. There wasn't a lot of money, um, you know, early on. Some restaurants and individual workers helped to provide food for people who needed it. Bruno was one of those. For about a month when he was furloughed, he teamed up with a friend who'd created a food delivery service, Project Polly. Uh, 
I was helping out with uh, delivering uh, lasagnas for people that couldn't afford food. So she would get up at five o'clock in the morning and she would cook like for, from five to 10 a.m., cook, make lasagnas and create a little nice kit with a little help from the guys from Red Bull and Narragansett. They give beers and Red Bull and lasagnas. And I would go pick it up and drive to around Boston for like the whole afternoon and drop that off. For the first. After that, Bruno pivoted to two projects. One was helping out a Cambridge restaurant where they were cooking for hospitals. Another took advantage of his years behind a bar, this time behind a virtual one with Zoom bartending courses. First, I got figured out how to set up the whole, my bar at home, which luckily I had a lot of products, uh, but set up that bar at home and then figured out lighting and then how to talk to people. Sometimes I walk, I walk, talk too fast and I feel like I got to go back. It's like, hey, can you go back here again? Because they're not sitting in the bar. They're trying to make cocktail with me at home. So the first time I did online class, it was too fast. So I figured that went too fast over the whole, all the stuff. And then little by little, I got better at, at it. And by the, by the end of the uh, course of I think it was three months I did that, uh, I was fine teaching people. Online. This kind of patchwork was typical for the bartenders I spoke to. There were long stretches of time with no consistent work in a closed industry. So those who were able got creative with projects, pieced together jobs when they were available, and where they could, they spent time with loved ones. Restaurant workers also counted on federal and state support to weather the worst of the pandemic. Bob Luz says this aid has been helpful in supporting the industry thus far. Now he's keeping an eye out for new funds that are hopefully around the corner. The, the uh, federal government, especially the state government, have been very focused on helping our industry. Uh, there's been two rounds of PPP. We got the Restaurant Revitalization Fund from the federal government. We depleted that right away. There's another bill for $60 billion to replenish that. The fund hasn't been replenished yet, but many others in the restaurant industry, like Bob, are hoping it will be soon. The Independent Restaurant Coalition reported 177,000 restaurant owners don't have the money necessary to keep their businesses afloat. And this comes as the costs associated with running a business are on the rise. According to the Producer Price Index report, prices of beef, veal, grains, and cooking oil all climbed by at least 9% between April and May of this year. We're hopeful, but that's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, and the state government, uh, uh, Governor uh, Baker, put the biggest grant program in the uh, out of 50 states out, uh, out uh, across the country. Um, and he put that out there and restaurants were at the front of the bus. Government and state aid is not always distributed quickly or equitably. A Boston Globe report delved into the nearly $1 billion in American Rescue Plan Act funds that came into Massachusetts to shore up the restaurant industry. But the rollout was uneven. Many smaller eateries and minority-owned restaurants weren't able to access these funds. This should sound familiar. These inequities are a common theme in government rescue packages passed during COVID. Our surveys showed they happened with PPP, where the smallest Massachusetts businesses were less likely to apply and less likely to be approved. And as we heard in the arts episode, inequities also happened with arts venues, where fewer small venues had the bandwidth to apply for grants. Stats on total restaurant closures vary somewhat, made more complicated by not knowing for sure how many may still reopen. But the estimates are devastating. According to the National Restaurant Association, 110,000 restaurants nationwide were closed as of December. 
Some of these are already back. Bob says some closed down temporarily for a portion of the pandemic, but have since reopened. That was partly due to reduced capacity limits and other challenges. We had uh, well over 500 restaurants that hibernated, quote unquote hibernated, and they made the business decision it was going to be best for them to close, uh, handle their fixed costs that they would have to, and no, no matter what, and, and, and not uh, also incur heavy variable costs at a time when they just couldn't drive revenue. That proved a very effective strategy. Virtually every restaurant that hibernated has now reopened. Both Scholars and Yvonne's fall into that category, having closed from March 2020 through last fall. That first month, Bruno said, everyone assumed the closure would be short. It turned out to be a whole season of hibernation. Uh, we uh, came in the, after the closing day. We got the whole team here and stayed for a whole week, just deep clean everything to make sure everything was organized. Because we thought, first of all, we would close for just a month. Uh, and then we'd be able to come back and reopen as soon as we can. But we all figured that out. That was not the case. Uh, and then after a couple of weeks, we found out that it was closed for more than a month. Uh, we came back and deep cleaned the whole restaurant. Yvonne's staff was furloughed right after that. So when some places reopened in the fall, restaurants and workers had a balancing act between customer expectations and safety. Caroline pulled a little work in September at a scholar's sister restaurant because her bar was still shuttered. But that dance floor was closed and the restaurant shut by midnight. She was also used to people wandering freely around the bar area. Now she was often physically separated from the customers and they were from each other. It was it was kind of weird just because you're coming in and you're trying to serve people and you're used to people coming up, but everyone has to sit at a table. You're serving everyone at a table. No one can get up and walk. You have to have like a wall between two tables. It's like, oh, safety precaution. And just with that Bruno one- described part of the job when they were able to open up again in September as almost like babysitting every customer. There were a lot of restrictions, not just on capacity. Most customers got it, Bruno said, but it could be a struggle to explain that this was coming from the state, not the bar itself. Other restaurants are just trying to reopen now, or adding more hours to meet growing demand. With nights starting to pick up again, one major challenge restaurants are facing is finding enough workers. This is a challenge they share with other industries. It's not completely clear what is driving these shortages. One theory is that potential employees are still nervous about health risks. Another is that unemployment benefits are reducing the urgency of returning to work, or that workers who pursued other skill sets during the pandemic don't want to return to their old positions. It wouldn't be the first time that national upheaval caused big shifts in the U.S. workforce. Restaurants are responding by offering higher pay and referral bonuses, among other things. But the historic levels of job openings remain. Boston restaurants often rely on seasonal worker movement as well. When the season ends on the Cape and Islands, for instance, many workers come back to Boston, to the bars there. But that can be tough to plan for. When I heard we were reopening, the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, September's going to come and I don't have staff. So I'm like building my staff right now for September, getting everything prepared. When I spoke to Caroline, she was tending bar upstairs on a Thursday evening after work. There were two people playing pool and two people at the bar. Half an hour later... Both floors of scholars were bustling with after-work parties and choruses of people remarking on maskless faces and filling old colleagues in on new jobs. 
Caroline showed up back behind that bar a month ago as capacity restrictions and mask mandates were just being lifted. I would like it to go back to normal, just kind of because we're already kind of in that um, process of like kind of coming back to everything, coming back to normal and um, 100% capacity. So I'd love for it to get back to that as long as everyone stays safe and, you know, having a good time and just, um, yeah, going back to living life. Hopefully, for bars like Yvonne's and Scholars, that's exactly what will happen. And with vaccination rates high in Massachusetts, it's happening already. But as we gather together, it's with an eye toward possible storm clouds on the horizon. We don't know what impact new COVID variants could have or whether new restrictions will be needed. Even if that doesn't happen, it's clear that many restaurants we knew and loved that closed aren't coming back. When we reopened during after the initial shutdown, 3,400 of 16,000 restaurants that existed on March 1st did, never reopened and still to this day haven't. Some are starting to reopen now as new, different uh, restaurants, but those 3,400 stayed closed the whole time. This leaves lots of empty spaces where our treasured diners and watering holes used to be. Whether or not new restaurants crop up in their absence will have a big impact on what the future restaurant scene looks like. As the state reopens, the restaurant landscape depends a lot on how other parts of society rearrange themselves and how quickly. Before the pandemic, Boston's restaurant scene was thriving. It drew crowds of students, business travelers, office workers, tourists, and local residents. Many of those customers haven't been to Boston in months. So how many will come back? Well, Bruno thinks it's going to be a busy season, but he's keeping an eye on the surrounding workplaces. But even now, I was talking to some, quote, like the guys from the next door, the other bar, that apparently they're doing 50% capacity inside the, uh, the office. So they alternate who's going to come in for two days, and then three days is the other 50%. And they go, and then every week we're going to switch back. The three guys, the people that work three days go for two days. And they're going back and forth. So parents said, them that's what's happening. So we bring a little more people into town, <clears throat> to downtown Cross, but not as much as we had before. Uh, also, September, schools are back, Suffolk, Emerson. It's around downtown area. So we might bring a little more business volume to, to the bars around. Another major question is what kinds of restaurants open in the now empty restaurant spaces? Some industry experts say there's a risk it will be larger chains with deeper pockets and independent operators will be crowded out. Others say there's now so much empty space, there are opportunities for everyone. One potential factor to consider is where restaurateurs want to open. That depends on where people decide to work and how often. Right now, surveys suggest some portion of the workforce who have the choice will work remotely, potentially a large portion. We're back to that spot we've reached in previous episodes where it all starts to overlap. We've already seen how large-scale remote work would affect transportation and where people live. But it also influences where potential restaurant customers are when it's time to eat. If my office was in downtown Boston pre-pandemic, um, you know, I'd be available to have two meals a day, if you would, you know, in Boston, right? Um, and if, if you take all those workers and keep them in Framingham or Lowell or Dedham, or, or Shrewsbury, wherever it is, instead of bringing them to Boston, now I have three chances to have a meal in Stowe or Framingham or, or Sturbridge, wherever I live. 
Bob says in response, some restaurant owners he knows opened up new branches of Boston-based restaurants outside the city. The dining landscape has changed, and it continues to change before our eyes. Far more restaurant sales used to happen inside the building. Now, restaurant food is very often eaten at home or outdoors. Outdoor dining is one of those unabashed positives to come out of COVID, where we all wonder why we didn't do it before. More restaurants will offer cocktails to go, too, thanks to a bill extending this practice through May of next year. On a larger scale, we could see a shifting of demand geographically. With changing work patterns, people could very well decide to eat closer to home than before. And looking ahead to the future also means looking back on the thousands of restaurants whose doors will never open again. The lost dreams of the people who started them, the tens of thousands of people who worked there, and the millions who remember how special each of those places was to us. COVID stole so much, but it's also opened new possibilities as the ways we live change. And as a result, it's made restaurants more resilient, more prepared, more able to meet the desires of their customers. We'll see more of these impacts in the restaurant world as new things appear. But as we find our new habits and our new favorite places, it's worth remembering how we got here. That's it for this episode of Mass Reboot. Next time, we're looking at work, focusing on the big question we've been asking for the last few episodes. Is remote work here to stay? That's next time. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in association with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Cazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.